Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Now or Never, the show that celebrates what it takes to try and reminds you that you're not alone when you do. I'm Trevor Deneen, and right now I am lugging my mint green, almost 20-pound typewriter into a place that you might be surprised still exists. The last typewriter repair shop in Winnipeg. Hello there. Hello. How are you doing? So this here is my little lady, uh, my typewriter here, and uh, as you can see, it has seen better days. <laughs> it has been through a lot over the years. It used to be a very good typewriter. Yeah, and it used to work uh, on a regular basis. I would use this typewriter to leave notes for my wife around the house. And, uh, and then I had kids, and then the kids started to play with it and they saw it as a toy, and as you can see, they mangled it. (laughs) Well, we can do something about it. You can? Yeah, of course. New spools, spools broken, cleaned up, put a new ribbon, there we go. Make sure it's 100%. I, uh, I was looking around the city of Winnipeg, and you are the only typewriter repair person left. Yeah, suddenly. I'm only one. What I can do? People need to service typewriters, so I'm here. This is why I'm coming to work every morning. Now I know what you might be thinking. A guy who still repairs typewriters in 2023? But Izu Gefter has been doing this for 56 years and he has no plans to stop. Even though... Well, it's not that busy. (laughs) But... uh, we have at least one typewriter a week. Yeah, something like that. One typewriter a week? That even surprises me. Yeah. And some of them just, uh, they want just a piece, a conversation piece. I have some uh, which they like the type and it inspired them to, to write, you know. And some people don't trust uh, this uh, digital technology. And they, this is what they use typewriters. Nobody can spy on them. And yeah, that's the reason. I have a couple guys, this what they want a typewriter for. Look at this one. Can I, can I press the buttons? Can I hit the keys? This is the right margin. How do I add an emoji? What's funny about this is that uh, I'm instantly transported back. My father was a salesman, and when I was a little boy, I would go to his office, and he had a typewriter. And all I wanted to do every single time I went to his office was play with the typewriter. I wanted to put the paper in, I wanted to turn the knob and hear that sound going back and forth, and I would just sit there on his typewriter while he did his work, and I would just type away on his typewriter. And I think that's why I still have one to this day, is that like it just reminds me of being in my dad's office. Working with my son for the last, what, 20, 25 years. So 
It's a blessing. He actually, when I was 12, he taught me how to fix typewriters. Uh, national typewriter. A national typewriter. So it was my Saturday job. I was the first, out of my group of friends, the first 12-year-old to have a job. It was cool. I, uh, your idea, you said, uh, to teach me, at the very least, to teach me how to use tools so I can use them in life, you know, mm -hmm. however we're going to do it. So. My son uh, was working and my daughter was working before that. So it's like all family is involved in that. What keeps you going then? Like, what keeps you going as like the last typewriter repair person in Winnipeg? Uh, to me, I spent most of my life fixing typewriters. I'm 76, going to be 77 soon. I wake up in the morning, and if I'm not coming to work, you know, what I'm going to do? Drive my wife crazy, you know? So I think it's the best thing for me is to come and do whatever I do, what I love to do. It's good for my brain, say, for my body. As, soon, as long as I can walk and healthy, um, we will continue. So you think we can fix this typewriter up in mine? I'm pretty sure you can do it. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna throw my MacBook and I'm gonna get rid of my cell phone, just typewriter from now on. That's yeah. all. <laughs> you, you, you sure? <laughs> <laughs>— say all the time, nothing lasts forever and that life is about change and adapting, but there is something to be said about holding on, persevering, and trying to keep something going long after everyone else has moved on. Now is it resilience, stubborn pride, or just loving something so much that you can't let go? Well this week on Now or Never, we're finding out what it takes to be the last one standing. Myself and my wife Georgina are the only year-round residents that live on a small island in the North Atlantic called Little Bay Islands. You know, we look at it as an adventure if we're here completely stranded. For me, there was definitely anxiety there because I didn't, I didn't feel like I stood out not having children for a long time because I knew so many other people that didn't. You know, it's now a group of me and, and no one else. There are fewer and fewer Chinese-run businesses in Chinatown. So it, it does break my heart to see that as one of the last ones. I think Chinatown can actually be a, a brighter place because even if there's one or two of us left, there's still hope. This is Now or Never. EP's away this week, so I'm standing for the both of us and my legs. They're getting a bit sore but not as sore as this next guy. It was a hot Sunday afternoon in June when 35-year-old Jimmy Chow crossed the finish line at the end of his very first full marathon. What I wanted after I caught the finish line was I wanted a massage because I know that for the full marathoners, they were available. And I asked the announcer, do you have, you still have them? I was like, no, unfortunately not. I was like, okay, we well, can have a banana. I was like, all right. <laughs> By the time Jimmy got there, the massage therapist had already gone home. In fact, the stadium was almost empty because with a time of six hours and 52 minutes, Jimmy was the last person still in the race. 
I'm Jimmy Chow, and I was the last person who finished the Manitoba Marathon of 2023. L let's settle it first and say I'm not a too, too serious runner. I'm more of a casual runner who likes to go at their own pace. But at the same time, I want to, to meet certain achievements. And I remember that morning, it was odd because it was summer and it was foggy. Temperature-wise, it was slightly colder than normal. Eventually, it got hotter. I was half excited, half nervous. The excitement is because it's the day. It's the day that this is happening. The nervousness is the fact that now we're going into, for me, distance-wise, I'm going into new territory. So that, that's the nervous part is, even though I did the training, I don't know how I'm gonna feel when it comes to, to that point. Jimmy has been running for a couple of years and did two half marathons in the months leading up to the Manitoba Marathon. But this was his first time trying a full 42 kilometer race. And around kilometer number 30, Jimmy knew he was in trouble. I remember hitting the middle of Wellington Avenue, which I can't tell, I don't remember the distance, but I know that's when I started noticing it. things are changing body-wise and the mind and the weather. Rather than having a foggy morning, now we're having a sunny mid-afternoon going into lunch hour or so. I felt this kind of burning, cramping sensation in my, my thighs. Breathing was more labored, I, I found. Then the head, the brain was just... <laughs> it felt like it was, it was slowly melting. <laughs> there came a point where I, I, I just couldn't do it anymore. But it wasn't a big giving up where I'm, I'm, I'm going to just surrender and, and say, no, I, I'm done. I want to go back home. I want to go back to the stadium. And that's it. My choice was to, was to start walking. And so I, I called a, a race official that was just biking around me and, and I told them, look, this is what's going on right now. My mind is clear, but my body is, is saying otherwise. And so you, the race official, what choices do I have? So it, it, these were my options. Either you call it in right now, but you won't give it time. The second option is that you continue walking. Mind you, water stations are slowly closing up. I right away took the second option. Since I started getting into running, I don't remember who exactly said this, but just don't stop. It's, it's okay to walk, but to never give up. And I still have my bib. So the race is still on, but uh, I, was, I was all by myself. With his closest competitor 20 minutes ahead of him and race officials closing up the course as he passed, Jimmy felt lonely at times. But he did have a team of supporters still waiting for him at the almost deserted finish line. I was more worried about my friends waiting for me, like, because most of them did a half marathon at that day. And so they were still checking up on me. And I, after I texted them, they, they told me, no, we're still here. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm only like, I'm five hours into this race, which I should have f finished two hours ago. <laughs> and they were still there. So like knowing, knowing that, knowing that, it they kept me going. I wanted to to see them. <laughs> you couldn't have a better ending for a race than, than knowing that your good friends are there, also your girlfriend. These people have been with you the entire time, really. 
and they've always been they've always been there. It felt really good that when I saw the finish line or that saw the the gate leading into the stadium where there's there was no one around and you come into an empty stadium with their voices cheering you from the corner of I'm pretty sure it was gate three there and the announcer sticking around still with the with this the big arch that th this was personal this was personal this was a personal best I know there's a lot of high fives for sure, and a lot of hugs, and I just wanted to sit down. When I look at the medal, it means that I persevered and I did not give up because I, I can recall clearly that very moment that I really wanted to. If I look at that medal now, or even in the future, it's always gonna reflect back to me that there was that moment there was literally that moment of perseverance and I had the decision to move. I knew my li limit and I pushed past that. I've got to say, I have only ever run a half marathon and I almost crawled my way to that finish line. So I can't imagine what it takes to run a full one and to push through even when everything in your body is screaming at you to stop. And the fact that Jimmy was able to do that makes him a champion over and over again. We have video and photos on our social media of Jimmy on race day crossing that finish line. So check him out on our CBC Now or Never Facebook and Instagram pages. The phrase, last one standing, kind of implies that at some point, something's gonna happen like it did to all of the others before you and you will fall. But when the thing that has you feeling like the odd one out is exactly how you want your life to be, joining the masses just isn't an option. Even when you're sure, there are people who will tend to sow seeds of doubt. Um, like, you know, what's gonna happen when you get older? Who's gonna take care of you? Those kinds of questions. Um, but then, yeah, you meet people who are like you, you know, you're not alone. Um, and so you have to almost have like these self-affirmations of knowing that you're okay, it's all good. Um, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, and here's this community of women who are just like you, sort of thing, um, yeah. Melissa Ramage is one of the members of Swank Toronto, a meetup group for single women with no kids that I'm gonna be talking to about finding friendship, connection, and reminders that you're not alone. Stay tuned, that's a little bit later on Now or Never. One order of the black beans and rice and two of the barbecue pork buns. Yes. Yep, perfect. And do you need some hot sauce, soy sauce today? William Liu is working the till inside this busy dim sum shop on East Pender Street in Vancouver's Chinatown. Okay, that, I got it. The walls are lined with trays of bao buns and in the back, cooks in hairnets and aprons whip up leaf-wrapped sticky rice and wontons. For William, this place is almost like a second home. I basically grew up in Chinatown all my life, and uh, after Chinese school at 4 p.m., I, I fondly remember just running because I was so excited to get my egg tart. <laughs> so I would start running, 
and then just walk in through the doors, say hi to my auntie, who's uh, just at their front uh, cash, and then my mom would be downstairs in the basement uh, packaging or making dumplings. So I would just run down the stairs. I remember, I remember the sounds of the, the wooden floors uh, knocking uh, as I was running down the stairs and everybody would be like, oh, there he is, there's, there's your boy. William's dad started this business more than 30 years ago, back when the neighborhood was full of shops selling herbal medicines, vegetables, and Asian cookware. Today, the Chinatown William grew up in looks a lot different. I'm just standing outside our store here, Kamwai Dim Sum. On our left-hand side, it used to be a place called Topper Poultry, and uh, it was a poultry shop that had been in Chinatown for over 40 years, and it's now a um, martial arts or mixed martial arts boxing gym and upstairs is a yoga studio a few vacant vacant storefronts those are uh, quite common especially in our block williams worried about the changes that he sees in vancouver's chinatown increased gentrification with the yoga studios and boxing gyms moving in and the shuttered doors of so many long-time family-run businesses long-time residents are moving away and rents continue to rise there are fewer and fewer Chinese-run businesses in Chinatown. So it, it does break my heart to see that um, it, there was just so much love in Chinatown. Uh, people felt a deep connection with their community, a deep connection with, with their neighbors. Nearly a decade ago, William left that deep connection to Chinatown so he could pursue his own dream of singing opera. But a phone call from his father, who was suffering from kidney disease, changed everything. I was auditioning in New York for my master's in opera, and, and my parents had already known they, they, they actually didn't want me to be a part of the family business. They thought that it was too difficult, too many things to worry about. Running a business is not easy. My dream has always been to travel around the world and to sing. So when I was in New York, I got a call from my dad. It was, I think, my third or fourth day of my auditions. And he said, hey, what do you think if I just sold the business? Um, I, I just got a call that I'm going to get the kidney transplant. And I don't think I'm going to be able to run the business while I'm recovering. Uh, it's a big operation. And uh, I, I said, do you think it would make you happy if I came back and helped you? And that was it. And my dad just said, I, I, I think if it makes you happy, then it would make me happy. And I am so happy that I made that choice because my dad is so healthy now. He is, uh, he's, he's the rock of this this uh, business and for him to be healthy and and still kicking around um, seeing his regular customers every single day still chatting with them and not needing to to really worry about the business while it's in my hands um, it, it means the world to me so I it when people ask me are you happy about your decision I say yes I would do it a hundred thousand times over absolutely So every day, all day, you'll find William right here. 
doing whatever he can to keep it going. The Pasigas, yeah, yeah. The Lotus Leaf Wrap. A lot of the seniors, they come down to get um, food from us because it's very, very affordable for them with the income that they have or limited income that they have. And see also, it's something that can, they can actually connect with, food that they are very familiar with. And that's why my dad decided to open Kamwai because we, there was a need for cultural food. It's food that they can really connect with and also for their children to connect with. I think standing in Chinatown and being able to do business the way that we are and, and being able to stand strong as one of the last ones, I think I would want that to be a symbol of, of hope for others that, that there is still this possibility that Chinatown can actually be a, a brighter place because even if there's one or two of us left, there's still hope. And I don't want us to be the last one standing. What I want is a, a, a thriving neighborhood a neighborhood that that was exactly like the way that it was growing up for me. I know it's not going to be that way, but but I I want us to be kind of a a symbol for people to to see that that there is still that that light in Chinatown. Hello. Uh, like, uh... Yeah, no worries. See ya. This is a 17-pound half. Yes, it's 50. Yes, it's 50. This is a 9-pound. This is Now or Never. I'm Trevor Deneen. And I don't know about you, but one title that I used to have back in the day was Last One to Leave a Party. Now, I had a bit of FOMO, I will admit this. I did not like missing out on things, so if a party was going, I was going to be there right to the end. I did it one time at my boss's house, and trust me, I was very embarrassed the next day because he had to actually kick me out of his home. Now, years later, I'm older, I'm wiser, I don't like to go out as much anymore. And I will say this, when someone stays too long in my house, there is a fiery rage inside of me to get them to go home. But I've never mastered the right way to get them to leave my house. So, I have decided to take a shot this week by penning a poem to the last one at the party. <clears throat> get out. I'm not trying to be rude, but get out. It's almost past two. You've seen me yawn about 40 times. I'm usually in bed at quarter to nine, but because you cannot take a clue, I'm still awake hanging out with you. So get out. Everyone left long ago. Get out. Some part of you has to know that the night is over, I have nothing more to say, my eyes are half closed, and I put all of the dishes away. You've got the crown, you're the last one here. I just want you to know you're not invited next year. So get out. I'm showing you the door. Please get out. I can't do this anymore. Get out. That cab out there, it's yours. Get out. So I can lock all of these doors. There's also a fun video of this poem if you want to see it on our Facebook and Instagram pages that you can share with anyone you want to subtly tell them to get the heck out of your home.
I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohith Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is Now or Never. I'm Trevor Deneen. And today we are pulling up a seat next to the last ones standing. The ones holding on when it seems like everyone else is moving on. And that could be with a business, a slice of nostalgia, or with your personal life. You see, as you get older, it's easy to notice a shift in your friend groups. You start off with everyone getting together when you're younger, hanging out, staying up late, going on trips. And it's easy to do that because most of the time you're single and you don't have any kids. But then things start to shift and suddenly being unpartnered with no children may make you feel like you're the last one standing. I want to come up with like a bit of a list right off the get-go, top three things that you just wish people would stop saying to single women with no kids. You still have lots of time. That's number one. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> or like, oh, don't worry, it's going to happen, you know, you never know, or yeah, just stuff like that. Like, doesn't <laughs> Yeah, mean never I... say never. Right. Yeah. And I'm just like, I'm okay, okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't need... <laughs> Honestly, I think it's just the straight up answer of why don't you have kids, which could feel quite personal too. Like Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like it's not your business why I don't have kids. Yeah, there's a lot of assumptions with that question. When you feel like the odd one out in your circle, you might consider doing what Melissa Ramage, Sarah Dukes, and Banesh Lodi are doing, finding new circles. They are just a few of the more than 800 members of the Toronto meetup group Swank which stands for single women and no kids. What are some of your favorite things that you've done together at at these meetup groups? Just like going to these nice uh, places to eat and like we're at the same point in their lives. So I didn't have to answer any questions or hear about anybody's kids, no (laughs) offense. Um, But yeah, like I could just, yeah, we could, it was like a common like understanding between everybody and you felt comfortable being yourself. I feel like most people just want to connect with other people who are, you know, have other things to talk about besides just their families. I find conversation tends to be organic. So there'll be meetups where we don't talk about it at all. The fact that we happen to be single with no kids, we're just enjoying each other's company. Or sometimes it'll just sort of happen organically where we just need to unload and rant and share our experiences of being single with no kids because it feels like a safe space to do so i think you hit on a good point there though because like i think sometimes you need a group where it can almost feel like a therapy session in some ways to be like oh i just want to get these things off my chest i just need to be able to say these things and i can't i can't say them around other people because like you mentioned melissa like they could take offense to it yeah exactly and it has happened i was actually just talking about this with another friend of mine the other day um at work sometimes it does feel like there are different expectations between people who are single versus those who are married or people have kids versus those who don't have kids and assumptions around oh you could stay late or you know is it okay if i take my vacation with my family well you're single so you should be totally cool 
to not have to take that vacation. Like, we've all made choices, and your choice was to be married and have kids, and there are things that come with that. I don't think I should have to accommodate that choice. Um, I can't really say that out loud at work. It does feel a little, (laughs) you know, um, political. Um, So I tend to choose my words in a way where I need to sort of assert that, yes, I am taking that vacation. This is why I booked it, you know? So, yeah. I have I have similar stuff, but with family. Really, so the assumption is that like if anyone's getting together, I should be free. Like no one no one asks me if I'm free. They're just like, this is the day, this is the time, and obviously I have no plans because I'm not married and don't have children. Um, and if I say I'm busy, this is like, well, what are you doing? Like, what could I possibly be doing that's more important because I don't have children, right? Um, it can get frustrating. When did it kind of hit you that you were one of kind of like the last ones standing per se in the single no kids world. I I was like in my late thirties. I feel like a lot of friends and acquaintances and even colleagues like who didn't have kids up until that point suddenly all had babies between like 38 and 40. And it was like, Oh, I thought we were all like on the same page on this. And suddenly we weren't at all. For me, there was definitely anxiety there because I didn't, I didn't feel like I stood out not having children for a long time because I knew so many other people that didn't. You know, it's now a group of me and and no one else. For me, it was uh, like in my, I guess like, like mid thirties. Um, and I took it kind of hard because um, for me, like I was very, you know, influenced by social media and my family and everything and felt like this is the path other uh, like, and this is the only path. So now I'm glad I got an opportunity to see something different and not just fall into the same same old like, you know, routine and status quo that everybody else, no offense, sorry, <laughs> for <laughs> children, but like, you know, like I'm able to explore, I can like, I have all these options available to me. So I was really, that made me like really open up and be like, okay, like, you know, I can do anything now. <laughs> this group was a big part of that because then I was like, oh, okay, it's not just me. So then I felt a little bit more better and started looking at like, yeah, kind of relaxing and finding myself again. Yeah, I feel like that's a common thread. There's this odd, you know, timeline of like, it feels like it is around the mid thirties as a woman where like, you really start to need to really answer that question of like, am I gonna have kids? Um, And even when you're sure, there are people who will tend to sow seeds of doubt Um, Like, you know, what's going to happen when you get older? Who's going to take care of you? Those kinds of questions. Um, But then, yeah, you meet people who are like you. You know, you're not alone. Um, And so you have to almost have, like, these (laughs) self-affirmations of knowing that you're okay. It's all good. Um, There's nothing wrong with you. Um, And here's this community of women who are just like you sort of thing. Um, Yeah. Like, on the way home from work today, I remember I was thinking, literally thinking, I'm so glad I'm not going home to children. Like I've had enough of children for the day and it's been a really long day and I'm kind of tired and I'm just going to have this chat with you guys and then I can do what I want. <laughs> yeah. Same, same with Sarah. Yes. I'm not coming. I'm responsible for me. Yeah. Um, I, there's no pressure on me to have to like make dinner for other people. Yeah. No daycare run. Oh my exactly. God. I do love that about my, my life. I feel like, Yeah just cooking for myself relaxing i know like you know i have enough things going on right now like stressed out about i can you know those few moments that have to relax i know they're 
It's all me. It's, it's like you're all trying to make me jealous. Okay, I get it. <laughs> I get it. Okay. <laughs> this is now or never. And I'll be honest, when I hear the words last one standing, my brain instantly does this thing where it relates it to TV shows that I've watched over the years. Things like The Walking Dead, The Last of Us, Lost, or even the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks where he was on the island for like four years. But this next story, it has me thinking about whether or not I could live alone on an island. I think I could, as long as I had, you know, all the comforts of home and there was nothing there that could, you know, eat me. There have been polar bears that have been spotted in the waters and the ice around the island. Yeah, I am out. Just like that. If I hear polar bears, I'm done. But you know what? Mike Parsons is not. He and his partner Georgina live alone on an island in the North Atlantic, just off of the island of Newfoundland. Everything requires a boat ride. And then depending on the Arctic ice conditions, uh, we may be completely stranded for weeks on end when the Arctic ice comes in. And last winter was a good example of that. There was quite a lot of Arctic ice and icebergs last winter. So there were weeks on end where we couldn't get off the island. I mean, it's the North Atlantic, so we get quite stormy weather and stuff. So there's days and weeks on end where it's not practical to go anywhere. So we do store up. And so, yeah, we're, we're quite stocked up. So we're quite sufficient here. And, uh, you know, we look at it as an adventure if we're here completely stranded. And, you know, they're not exactly roughing it as you would imagine. They have things like Netflix and solar panels and generators. But what they don't have on Little Bay Islands are neighbors. You see, four years ago, this community island was resettled by the provincial government. Now, most of the 40 or so people who live there, they voted to leave and they were paid to move. So the government didn't have to pay for the ferry or infrastructure on the island. But Mike and Georgina, they stayed. Uh, it was a day unlike any other I experienced in my life. Watching the community that you grew up in, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, die on a single day. We were there when they cut the power and uh, it was a, you know, a diesel generating station. So there was always that noise in the background, regardless of where you to. And for that to go silent... No one could talk. We were up at the ferry dock and just no one could talk because it was so emotional. We just couldn't get, couldn't get any words out. And Georgina had always said that she wanted to be the last one to throw off the ferry lines. So, uh, which she did do, and just to watch the ferry pull out, you know, it, it, it took something with it. I mean, other than just the people and stuff. We were committed right from day one. It had always been a dream of mine to live somewhere remotely. I never imagined for a minute it would be my hometown. And so I had mentally prepared myself, you know, for that lifestyle and was looking very much forward to living it. But as it happened, it got wrapped up in all the emotion of the resettlement and stuff. When we came back into the harbor, just the silence was just, I mean. You know, all you can really hear is the ocean in the background and depending on the wind, the wind in the trees and those types of things. But it's, it's eerily quiet in the, uh, the winter times.
So I got up and started the day today exactly the same way as I start every day, pretty much 365 days a year. I got up just before 4 a.m. and walked around the harbor, which I do every single morning. Rain, shine, snow, storms. You know, there's certainly lots of places on this island where I haven't set foot yet, but I'm slowly getting uh, <laughs> to getting to canvas all of it and. I feel, I feel like almost like I have my own kingdom, uh, where where I you know I'm kind of the king of his own castle, so to speak, here on on the island. Uh, it's it's remote in the sense that it's an island, uh, but geographically, like I said, it's not too far from the mainland. So for us, it takes between. 30 and 40 minutes in boat. Our, uh, we have a speed boat that we use to travel back and forth, you know, to do things like gas up to get gas for our boats and generators and, you know, maybe run some errands. But I would say 90 plus percent of the time it's Georgina that does that. And I stay, I stay on the island. And I can tell you one of the first stops for Georgina when she goes off the aisle is either a Tim Hortons or a Robbins. There's this psychological aspect of being on an island. Uh, you know, certainly in the in the North Atlantic in the middle of winter, like today, you know, there's a good northeast gale on and stuff. So even if we wanted to go somewhere, uh, we wouldn't be able to go. I pretty much stay on the island uh, 365 days of the year and have no desire to go, to go anywhere else, to be honest. I've kind of always been a loner myself. Myself and Georgina will be together 14 years now coming up in December. And I would say that we haven't had a fight yet. And I know that sounds strange, but it's the honest to goodness truth. We get along very well. Uh, we're both independent people. We have our own interests and stuff. And we have a balance that works. And that's why this old situation works so well. Because as you can imagine, if you're on an island with somebody that uh, you're in disagreement with or you know fighting and bickering and stuff then it takes away from the whole experience so yeah so we don't really uh you know bicker we we talk things out if something arises and you know try to come up with the best solution that works for both of us and you know uh i really don't have any stress and i know again that sounds strange in this world and stuff but i really do not have any stress whatsoever and that is just makes my life wonderful. <laughs> and for me, all the things that I love to do, nature, you know, photography, poetry, writing, all of those things, I step out my door and I can do. You know, people search for the meaning of life and all that kind of stuff. Well, I, you know, for me, I found it. I mean, during my tech career, I got to travel the world. I got to see some phenomenal places, really gotten to see the world and stuff. But there is something about Newfoundland and there is something about an island. Place is such an important part of who we are. Myself and Georgina were still excited about the adventure. And even to, even to this day, we're still both excited about the life we're living and uh, don't have any desire to change it or to do anything different.
and you know I can keep talking uh, maybe it's because you know when we're by ourselves there's no no one else to talk to other than ourselves it sounds so peaceful doesn't it Every day, Mike takes hundreds of photos on his little island, and even though they're often of the same fishing stages or old houses, they always look different to Mike. Now, you can see some of his photos on our Facebook and Instagram pages, and maybe leave him a comment there too, because it sounds like he could use some social interaction. This is Now or Never. I'm Trevor Deneen. And as you get older, things from your youth, suddenly they're not around anymore. And one of the things that stands out to me all the time are video stores. I worked in one when I was younger. I spent most weekends renting movies from them, going there with friends, going with girlfriends. I literally couldn't imagine a world without them. But here we are, 2023, and it is slim picking when it comes to video stores in most communities, which is why when I do find one, I find it real fun to reminisce. Here, let's do rapid fire. Things at a video store that if you never go to a video store, you wouldn't know about. I'm going to go first. Late fees. Yeah. The return bin. VHS movies. You know, how old do you have to be to have seen a VHS movie these days? The rewind machine. I have one at home because I have a functional VCR at home. Earl Hayhurst runs the video stop in Watros, Saskatchewan, a store that he has owned for the past 33 years. And from the moment you step through the door of the big blue building, it feels like going back in time. This is the entrance here. Look at those posters. Those They're are all awesome. wallpapered on there, so they look pretty cool. Get kind of retro. Full pile of VHS that I sell for a buck. This is like the candy confection room here and the popcorn machine, candy floss machine. I make more uh, money on that most days than movies. Just sign of the times, which I understand. Like I said, I'm a stubborn guy. I should have been out of this years ago, but uh, I love it. <laughs> I enjoy talking about movies with people. You know, just sharing the opinion of what's good, what's bad. You know, what do you like? You know, someone that can recommend an oddball movie or I recommend something weird and they bring it back. You know, we have a little talk about it. You know, yeah, that was really good. You know, great ending. Earl grew up in Watros and has loved movies his entire life. He started working in the town movie theater in high school, and when he decided to take ownership of the video store, business was at an all-time high. Well, at one time in our town of 2,500, there were six places in town that had movies, including two full-on video stores. They've since closed long ago. What's it been like for you then? Like, like you've obviously, you've had a front row seat now to change. You've watched change progress over the years because when you started, you probably could have never imagined a world where video stores became obsolete. What has been some of the hardest adjustments for you over the last couple decades? The advent of Netflix and that you knew it was there, but it didn't really matter because at that time it was all old movies. Now, of course, there's Apple and Disney. Disney is a big one. Like I, I do notice when I buy a Disney movie now, it just doesn't rent because there's no point. So what killed me was COVID. Because everything went online, and now they're just used to that, and it hasn't come back. I I keep hoping it will. You know, I think a, a nice solar flare would bring people back here in droves, but maybe it will become vinyl records. Look at the research in Sashead in the last few years. You know, maybe we'll get that too. You never know. 
What's that like for you? Because this isn't just a store for you. It's part of your DNA, it feels like. What would be lost for you if you had to close this store down? I don't know. Like I, I kind of don't like to think about that, but I mean, again, it's it's coming. And, you know, this last couple of years, it's coming fast. So, I don't know. Guess I have a big fire sale and, you know, pack her up and go live in the woods with my cats, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> this has been my job for... You know, majority of my life. I had an opportunity. This is eight, nine years ago when I was still doing pretty good. And I had a couple offer me considerable sum for the place. And like I said, I was still busy. I was still making a good living. I still loved it. But I do think back on that, you know, I could have been out of it. But eight years ago, nine years ago, who would have seen COVID? Who would have seen, you know, all the streaming services be as big as they are now? I don't know. Like I said, I I don't really like to think about it, but I should. Does it give you a sense of pride to know that you are one of the last ones standing? Oh, totally. I don't know if it makes me smart or stupid, but it's kind of cool. How do you, I know you don't like thinking about it, but like... How do you say goodbye to something that has been a part of you for most of your life? Because you said it's in the next couple of years you're thinking about it. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't even, you know, I don't know. You know, first of all, what am I going to do with all these movies? You know, because <laughs> they're not really worth anything. I mean, yeah, there's a few kind of collectible ones in here, but, you know, what do you do? Take them to, you know, donate them to Value Village, take them to pawn shop and get like a die each for them kind of thing, you know? Or just, you know, have the biggest movie collection around. <laughs> Which is probably the route I'll go. Is there in your future a possibility you could say, hey, so-and-so, would you want to take this over? I don't think so because, like, let's face it, you don't make any money. So it'd be something you just did for fun. And I don't see a lot of people that would commit to it. I think they would probably just, you know, ruin it, let it die kind of thing. And I'd like to do that myself. <laughs> the ship's sinking. I want to be the captain. I am the captain now. Yeah. Well, we can keep hoping for that solar flare. Yeah, that's true. There is always going to be a special place in my heart for video stores. I don't know if it's because I worked at one, because I went to them so often, but I just want to see Earl's store survive. He's the last one standing, and I hope he's the last one standing for much, much longer. So, yeah, what year would this be, Mom, that, w- that this photo was taken? Oh, i got to think about that. Let's see. I was born in 27. So this would have been about 1942, 1943? Yeah, in that area. In a Vancouver home, 96-year-old Marion Martin and her son Jim are looking at an old black-and-white photograph of Marion when she was 17 years old. So that that's the coveralls you wore? We There were khaki-covered um, overalls. We always had to wear a turban. To, so we did oh, not get... Oh, that's what's on your head. Okay. Yes, yeah. yes. We yeah, had to because it gets caught in uh, anything hanging right. Right when you're working. So you don't get trapped. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and the little Chevy... My dad That's bought cool. that for me for $75, and it's the dandiest little car you ever saw. Standing beside that dandy car in the photograph, 
A young Marion wears a tailored jumpsuit cinched at the waist, the same one she wore to work every day as a mosquito airplane electrician at a plant near Toronto. All my life, I've been very good with my hands, so it came natural to me to be an electrician. I knew that I had to do a good job because the pilots were depending on anyone who worked on the on the mosquito. So you did a good job so that the pilots would be safe. It was the Second World War, and Marion was one of many women hired to keep war supply chains running. Her wages, 75 cents a week, helped her parents immensely. The job was... Sometimes hard. I've had two experiences. I nearly lost my life. I was working up in the wheel well, and then somebody went into the cockpit and touched the controls. And before I knew it, the wheels came up and it goes beep, three beeps. And I knew that. So I dropped down and the wheels came up. And if I hadn't have dropped down, I would have been crushed to death. So <laughs> those are experiences that you look back and you think, oh my goodness. So anyway, you just did the best you could. When the war was over, we were so grateful because it was such a long war. <laughs> but we knew we were all out of work. I think it was three weeks later that I got my notice that I was finished. So. Anyway, uh, from then on, it was very hard to get a job, but I got a job in Woolworths at the time. Glad to get it to bring a paycheck in. And it took a little while for the men to come home from overseas, but we're all so grateful that the war was over. It lasted too long, far too long. It's believed Marion may be the last of the women who worked on those planes in Toronto during the war. But for her, being the last isn't a negative. I think I have to be thankful. I'm still going. And that I, <laughs> and that I never dreamt I would be 96. But I'm, in good, I'm still in good health. But with me, um, after losing Bill he, uh, five years ago, after being married 72 years, you, you, it's very lonely. But you just, I don't know, yeah, one day at a time. I had a proposal. This is funny. I had a proposal. I think at the time we were both 92 or 93. <laughs> I said, you know, I don't think we should. <laughs> I said, we're too old. <laughs> anyway, it's time to be born and time to die. That's what the Bible says. So, I don't know. I just take one day at a time and do the very best I can in that day. Big thanks to our producers who put the show together this week. Sarah Tate, Bridget Forbes, Tanara McLean, Betsy Trumpner, and Caroline Hillier. I'm Trevor Deneen, and Ify Chiwetelu will be back next week Take care, everyone.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.